This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hi there, thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. And on this week's episode, uh, we're going to uh, visit an old friend, uh, which uh, visited last in 1986, I think it was. And uh, it's about halfway to coming back and visiting us again. We'll tell you all about that soon. And a first-of-a-kind stream of stars has been discovered, and uh, they can't really figure out why it exists, as with most things in space. Uh, We'll also answer some audience questions about the boat, about temperatures in space, uh, about galaxy collisions, and uh, lo and behold, someone wants to finish the year with a dad joke. And we will indulge him. That's all coming up on Space Nuts. I thought I might start with a different theme, just, you know, to get into the Christmas spirit, Fred, but... um, (laughs) You know, just so that no one in the podcast world gets uh, upset, we better do the proper one. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And here he is, the man of the moment, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Space nut at large. Uh, uh, nice to see you, Andrew. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay in this uh, horrific heat we're having. We're into the second, possibly third week of a heat wave. Temperatures uh, not getting below 100 in American speak. But um, we'll get mm. some relief in a couple of days when it drops to 36 degrees centigrade, which is still in the <sighs> 90s. Uh, but, uh, yeah, other than that, quite well. This is our last show for well, – not last show for the year, but the the last fresh show. We're just going to run a couple of repeats between now and the new year, and then we'll get back together pretty swiftly, not like last year when we took two and a half months off. But, um, yes, this year we will uh, just that was, that was a couple of weeks. Though. Yeah, well, there were all yeah. sorts of things going on then, weren't there? There were, yes, that's right, there were. Now uh, let's um, let's get straight into it because um, I, I'm intrigued by this particular story because we have a Halley's Comet update. What's what's happening with Halley's Comet? Um, well, it, so the reason why we've got an update is that a few days ago, uh, on the eighth of December, which, by the way, is also Sibelius's birthday. I just thought you'd like to know that uh, the composer. Uh, it's uh, the eighth of December marks the point at which Comet Halley is furthest from the sun. So Comet Halley has got this highly elongated orbit, really stretched, uh, and it's now, in fact, just to give you the distance, it is 30.5 astronomical units away. And as you know, an astronomical unit is 150 million kilometres. It's the distance between the Earth and the sun. So it's 35 of those, 35 Mm. times as far away as the Earth is from the sun. Uh, Do you know off the top of your head, Andrew, how far away Neptune is in those units? Uh, Yes, I do. 
Good. <laughs> well, I won't ask you then because I do too. <laughs> I, I don't, actually. I don't. It, it's 30. 30. 30 astronomical units is the orbit of Neptune. And so Halley is, is way beyond that. It's, you know, five Earth orbit radiuses from further on than, than Neptune, 35 mm. astronomical units. So it's on its way back into the inner solar system. It will uh, reach uh, the sun or have its closest point to the sun, closest approach to the sun in uh, 2061. In fact, it, it will be visible uh, from the 19th of June, 2061, put it in your diary, uh, and perihelion, that's the nearest point, is uh, on the 28th of July, 2061. I am not expecting to see it, but I'll be <laughs> delighted if I do, uh, because uh, I'm 100 and something or other. Yeah, I'll be well into my 90s, so I don't expect to be seeing it either. Oh, yeah. But uh, well, look, look at you, you never, never say never, never say never. Um, now, I, I'm intrigued by this because uh, Halley's Comet's probably the most famous comet in history, but in 1986, it was rubbish. Uh, it, it was just terribly disappointing. We were all revved up for it. And it turned up, and and you yes. can barely make out this this fuzzy blob, which is all I saw of it myself. Do you know why? Do you know why you were all revved up for it, Andrew? I was revved up for it because it's Halley's comet, and I expected to see this flash of this that's, big fireball see, in the sky, but that, that's not what it was. Yeah, no, you were part of the problem uh, <laughs> because what revved everybody up for it? What revved everybody up was the media. Yeah, mm. uh, because astronomers, and I wasn't personally involved with this, but back in 1910, the last time it came around, astronomers said it is going to be rubbish in 1986. Oh, and the reason they? for that is that when it were, yeah, absolutely, it's well known uh, where, you know, where in the sky it's going to be in the future. Uh, and in 1986, as predicted back in 1910, it was on the other side of the sun from the Earth when it was at its brightest. So, you know, you've got this object which is basically, uh, you know, more than the Earth's, the radius of the Earth's orbit away. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was always going to be feeble. And yeah, they said in 1910, 1910 was a brilliant appearance. Uh, and in fact, the Earth went through the comet's tail, which uh, caused all these quack medications for people to protect themselves against the comet's tail because already people knew that comets tails contain cyanide they do oh, uh, and yeah oh cyanide oh you're gonna, we're all going to die so you must take dr spock's uh, magic medicine uh, to stop you dying so yeah it was a huge thing in 1910 uh, but in 1986 we were all saying in the world of astronomy don't bother it's going to be rubbish but the media really jacked it up is that because of the angle that it came in from. I, I read something about the fact that it was on the, the wrong side of the sun for our position to get yeah, a good it, look. And in 2061, it's actually right. in a much better place. That's right. It's far better, far better place. So it was at its brightest, it was on the other side of the sun from us. Right. Uh, and yeah, so it was It was always going to be a fizzer. Um, I did see it. Curiously, I was... When it was at its closest in 1986, I was in the UK, even though I was working here in Australia. But I came back uh, and there was a total eclipse of the moon, which meant oh. that despite it being a full moon, the moon 
effectively disappeared because it was in the Earth's shadow, mm. and we could see Comet Halley that night. So this is a total eclipse of the moon. Oh, was that would have been amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've um, seen a couple of comets in my life, and there was one, oh gosh, I can't remember what year it was, but it, it was spectacular uh, on the southern yes, horizon, I, or western, yeah. I can't remember. That, but that, um, that was, it was early in 2007. Yeah, I remember because it was around Australia Day, um, January 26th, yeah, uh, I was right. at a function for it Australia was. Day, and uh, we, we were all having dinner, and we all went outside to look at the comet when the sun set, and... Oh, man. But no digital cameras back then, so no one got a photo of it. <laughs> but it looked amazing. So which one was it again, sorry? Yeah. It, Comet McNaught. Um, mm. So Rob McNaught, uh, who works alongside me at Siding Spring Observatory, we were colleagues there. He was also an avid comet discoverer because, in fact, that was his job. He was paid uh, from NASA via the Australian National University to operate a telescope that was looking for near-Earth objects, things that might collide with Earth. Mm. And so he discovered, as well as things that might collide with Earth, he discovered many things that wouldn't. And that certainly the most spectacular was Comet, um, Comet McNaught. Um, the, he, he discovered several, actually. But that particular one, which was brightest at the beginning of 2007, was utterly spectacular. And you might remember it had what were called striations in the tail. It had these, these yes. stripes in the tail, which were um, when as clouds of dust were emitted from the comet. It was mm -hmm. an absolute cracker. It was. Uh, um, you know, Rob's name lives on uh, because of that. Rob's still around. He lives in Kundabaraba, but he's not very active these days in the comet discovery world. Yeah, um, so, that, so that one was just, Comet. Just to... That one was Comet McNaught, and the next one he discovered was Comet McOne, and then Comet McTwo. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure he's. Uh, yes, gosh. I will tell him next time I see him. <laughs> He'll tell me that's what happens when he. <laughs> Yeah, he probably got to Comet Mc15 and maybe even Mc16. He's yeah. discovered plenty. In fact, yeah. there is one. Uh, if I remember rightly, I think there is a McNaught Watson as well because we jointly. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, McNaught Watson. Now, uh, one uh, other thing about this uh, Halley's update um, is, uh, I believe it's really slowed down as it reaches that furthest point from the sun um, it, yeah. uh, because when it passes the sun it's going at a hellish pace but when it gets back out there yeah. past Neptune it goes oh I'm too tired just going to have a rest <laughs> I suppose it has yeah, to it's, slow it's down Kepler's and turn third. around doesn't it no it's Kepler's third law oh. which says that now wait a minute it's uh, the area swept out I can't actually remember it, but it basically says that things move fastest when they're closest to the sun and slowest when they're furthest away, and the speed just just varies. Um, it, it's all about the, the way it sweeps out the area. Uh, and Kepler's third law formulated in the early 17th century. Uh, and you're right. So at the moment, it is moving relative to the sun at 0.9 uh, kilometers per second. I always think of kilometres per second. So just short of one kilometre per second, which is actually much the same as the moon's orbit around the Earth. The, the, the moon moves at about one kilometre per second. Mm. Uh, but when it's at its closest, it whizzes by the sun at 54 kilometres per second. 
Uh, and that's because of this phenomenon. Uh, with any elongated orbit, uh, it's very slow at aphelion, the furthest point from the sun, and very fast at perihelion, the closest point to the sun. Okay. So, so I'm glad you pointed it, it out because I, I was going to mention it too. Oh, good. When it turns around and starts coming back, does it do that in an arc or does it just turn on itself and roll back or how does it work? So it, its path is an ellipse, um, uh, which is an oval, basically. So like a uh, but it's a very elongated. Um, a boomerang's more of a hyperboloid, actually. All oh, right, near <laughs> splitting here. Yes. Oh, you, you can, yeah. can you? So, so no, no. Well, no, I cannot. That's true. <laughs> I could. I, there's probably one or two, one or two, if I could find them, that might let me split them. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so an ellipse is. Um, it, it's look, you know what it is. It's a it's a, an elongated circle. It's an oval, mm. and so if you, you just imagine one of those that's stretched out, uh, so that you're quite right that it, it is highly curved at the two ends, uh, at the, the two extremes. But um, it's not that it just so, slows down and falls back. Although in a sense that's what it's doing, uh, but it's got it's got still got its motion around the orbit. Now uh, another thing I'm thinking is uh, we, you know it's 76 years between visits to the sun, yeah. um, is it an even split between the journey out and the journey back? I'm just trying to do the maths in my uh, head. No, it's I not. No, I didn't think no, so. No, it, it's it's not because of that, certainly in terms of the distance. I mean, it's in terms of time, uh, or let's do it the other way around. If if it's if it's halfway out to its, um, its perihelion, I think it is... Uh, more than halfway in its time because its velocity in the inner part of its orbit is greater. And yet... Is that right? I just, I've got I just, that the wrong way around. I just, I just <laughs> did the math. I just did the math and oh, right, it's, yeah. it's been 38 years since it was here. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, so I'm sorry, I, I, mis I misunderstood your question. Oh, okay. uh, so what you're saying is, is the outward journey the same as the return journey? In time, uh, in terms of equal time, yes, yeah. it is okay. But distance-wise, it, it varies. Uh, it's yes, that's correct. So um, the, there might be slight perturbations caused by the gravity of things like Jupiter that just make it a little bit different. But basically, uh, the time from perihelion to aphelion is the same as the time back from aphelion to perihelion. Aha! All right, we've got it. Okay. Well, we we still got to be patient though. Twenty sixty one's a while away. Um, I, I also read that uh, anybody born in the 80s has a reasonable chance of seeing it or, or after. Yeah, that's right. You'd be you're sort of in your 90s by then. Uh, you know, 2061, if you were born in 1980, uh, well, if you were born in 1991, clearly you'd be, you'd be, uh, you'd be 70. So, well, if it's 2061 yeah. that it's arriving, I'll be 99. I just worked that okay. out. Okay. Mm. So that's. Uh, look, I reckon you're going to make it to 99. <laughs> I, I, I did a, a talk this morning, uh, which was commemorating a commemorative talk for one of my colleagues who was a very, very accomplished uh, astronomical engineer who I knew quite well. His name was Herman Vayner. He died in October at the age of 99, and he was doing orienteering 
until his 98th birthday. <laughs> he was wow. a mad, keen orienteer. Yeah. But yeah, what a great life. And uh, so I'll tell you, he's a role model for me. But even if I live to 1999, sorry, till I'm 99, that wouldn't be long enough for me to see Comet Halley, I'm afraid. Mm. How old were I? Oh, well. Wait a minute, I can tell you. Vincent's phone. I'm not going to work it out. I, I would only be 100. I'd be 115, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that'd almost be a world record. <laughs> it would, yeah, it would would be. But I could tell you, I'm aiming for it. And yeah, why not? Up that easily. No, why not? It was short. Just absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, it's on its way back. Is basically what we spent 15 minutes telling you. Um, so. <laughs> It's all good news. It's nothing like space nuts. Nothing like space nuts for spinning one piece of information out into half an hour. <laughs> uh, if you want to read all about it, uh, there's a good article on fizz.org. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's just take a quick break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. And I'd like to send out a, a shout-out to Nord for being such great supporters of Space Nuts. They've uh, been with us uh, for many months uh, out of uh, the last couple of years, and we really appreciate their support. So thank you so much. Of course, NordVPN is the one I use on my um, uh, my iPhone, on my iPad, on my computer. Uh, it is such a useful device. And as a Nord, uh, as a uh, Space Nuts listener, of course, you have access to a really great deal courtesy of NordVPN. Uh, so just uh, jump onto your device and put nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts into your browser, right? Enter that and it will bring up a special page introducing you to NordVPN. Uh, and it, uh, they've got a really exclusive Christmas deal going at the moment for Space Nuts listeners uh, where you can make great savings, but you'll also get an extra four months thrown in absolutely free. And uh, you never should forget their 30-day money-back guarantee. They really do back their product and they really are the best at um, a virtual private network and all the other stuff that comes with it. I mean, it's not just about a VPN, uh, which is really useful when you're traveling, uh, especially if you get in those public Wi-Fi areas, you switch your VPN on and you are secure. Uh, so you get that as a part of the deal. You get uh, malware protection and the tracker and ad blocker, very good tools. But if you want to get more uh, bang for your buck, uh, and all their deals include that extra four months, doesn't matter whether you sign up for the standard deal uh, or go for um, uh, one of the uh, more... Uh, uh, intensive deals with all the, the extra bells and whistles. Uh, they're all uh, going to give you the extra four months. Uh, but if you go intermediate level, you can uh, add on the cross-platform uh, password manager and the data breach scanner. But I, I went the whole hog uh, over a two-year period, which saved an absolute fortune. You can get a monthly plan, a yearly plan, or a two-yearly plan. I went two years and I got everything, it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. It's, it's actually very inexpensive. And the longer you go with them, the lower the commitment on a month-by-month -month basis. Uh, so if you do go with everything, they'll throw in one terabyte of cloud storage. And you know, we all need that these days with so much data being stored and the next generation file encryption. 
Check it out for yourself, nordvpn.com slash space nuts, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Click on uh, get the deal, check it out for yourself. Uh, you know, at the very least, you want to secure your devices from anybody who wants to get your data, clean out your bank accounts, uh, or just, you know, muck around with your identity and sell it on the um, on the dark web, because that's what's happening a lot. And a VPN service... Uh, can certainly secure you from uh, those kinds of people. Uh, NordVPN.com slash Space Nuts. Check it out for yourself. And thanks again to Nord for being great sponsors of Space Nuts this year. Now, back to the show. Roger, you're live. Stay here also. Space Nuts. Now, next story, Fred, uh, is a, a real mystery, and that's because uh, astronomers have discovered a first-of-a-kind, which is what you do when it's a first-of-a-kind, you discover it, a stream of stars. What, what are we talking about here? What's it mean by a stream of stars? What, what I gather is that this is uh, unusual in that it's in a place where it shouldn't be. That seems to be the gist of the story. Yeah, you don't really need me for this because you've done it all. Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm still mystified, no. <laughs> though, as to, as to what it is, why it is, and where it is. Okay. So let's think about star streams. And there are such things, and our galaxy has them. Uh, although, once again, the stars in them have only just been discovered. It's uh, it, It's been known for a long time because of the gas that's in it. And this is what's called the Magellanic Stream. So, you know, we've got the two clouds of Magellan in the Southern Hemisphere, large and small clouds. They are uh, basically being devoured by our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And so they're spiralling inwards, basically, over periods of tens of millions of years. And as they do that, they leave debris behind. And that debris is in the, in the form of gas and stars. And so they leave behind what we call stellar streams, a stream of stars. Um, and we can see those in other galaxies, Andrew. When we look at um, other distant galaxies, we can see them uh, actually physically in the in the region of a galaxy. But here is one that has been discovered, and it's basically straight. It's a straight line, uh, which stellar streams normally aren't. They're normally curved because they're behaving under the influence of a nearby galaxy. Mm. Um, and this one is 10 times the length of the Milky Way's diameter, Blimey. so 10 times 100,000 100, light years. So it's this is big. Um, it's, um, you know, a, a million, um, million light years are thereabouts, uh, across or along. Uh, and it's in a cluster of galaxies, a very well-known cluster of galaxies actually called the Coma Cluster, mm -hmm. um, which is about 230 million light years from our own galaxy. Um, and it's been it's just showed up in, uh, in images, really deep images uh, taken of this cluster of galaxies. Uh, and it's actually quite interesting because it's a team of scientists uh, who ha who've been looking for signs of of dark matter, um, and they've been basically looking for anything within this cluster of galaxies that might hint at the presence of dark matter. And it's usually the fact that you see gravitational distortions. Uh, they, I should explain they're from uh, an organization they used to work closely with, the uh, Astrophysical Institute in the Canary Islands, uh, at, um, where big telescopes are on the island of La Palma. Uh, so uh, although the Astrophysical Institute is actually on Tenerife, just to be 
clear about the details, uh, is scientists there who were searching for the, the, the coma cluster for evidence of dark matter. And what they found was this star stream, uh, a, and more or less a straight line, as I said. Uh, and it's a puzzle as to how it's got there. Why are there structures like this in the universe? It's something that we've not really recognized mm. um, before. It's uh, one nice coincidence, by the way. Sorry uh, to interrupt, Andrew. A nice coincidence is the coma cluster was the cluster of galaxies in which dark matter was first discovered back in 1933. But nobody took any notice of the discovery because it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. It. Well, it still doesn't make much sense because <laughs> we, we don't <laughs> really know well, what right. it is. Uh, but uh, so, so th this this um, string of of stars is positioned in a, a way that makes it so much different from the other strings of stars that that you know exist, you know, within galaxies. This one's in a very strange place, isn't it? Um, it it's it, it's odd. Yes, it is. So it's in a cluster of galaxies, but it doesn't seem to be attached to any particular galaxy. Uh, whereas all the st stellar streams that we know about are, they're part and parcel of a galaxy, usually in what we call the halo of the galaxy, the this kind of spherical shell of stars that surrounds a galaxy, for example, one with a disk like ours, the Milky Way. Uh, we have a halo, call it the galactic halo, around the Milky Way, and that's the place where you expect to find stellar streams. And as I've said, we do find them, not mm. just one, but... Um, but several of them in our own galaxy. Uh, the interesting thing is this is more or less linear. It's more or less a straight line. And so the suggestion is that what we're seeing is it almost perhaps like a broken off stellar stream, one that's been going around another galaxy, but has some somehow been disturbed by gravity uh, to straighten it out and put it in, in deep space uh, in, the, in among the other galaxies of the cluster. It, it and it is stretched out between a bunch of galaxies. The the coma um, they call this the giant coma stream, but it's within that coma cluster. Uh, why yeah. aren't they affecting it? Uh, they they probably are, um, uh -huh. and this is what the real puzzle is. Uh, actually, there's um, I mentioned the uh, Astrophysical Institute in the Canary Islands. Um, one of the scientists is actually at Groningen in the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, that astronomer uh, basically has said y y you would expect uh, finding you know a stream of stars like this that it would be ripped apart by the gravity of all these other galaxies, and so nobody really knows how it's how it's managed to stay intact and how it's grown so large. Uh, and the explanation they're looking at is possibly dark matter that there might be dark matter that is somehow. Uh, you know, its gravity is somehow shepherding this uh, giant coma stream uh, to, 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 to mean to render it more permanent than it otherwise would be because you'd expect it to be torn, torn to bits. Um, the interesting conjecture is, are there other examples of this? Uh, what do they look like? Are there others, uh, other examples in the, in the coma cluster? Should we be taking deeper and more sensitive images of this cluster? And what why, might we... What might we might find if we do? So that's yeah. the sort of ultimate progress of this. So the so so what they're saying is we were looking for information and evidence of dark matter. We found a weird 
a string of stars that are, you know, it's a million light years across. Uh, they shouldn't be like that, but it could be caused by dark matter. <laughs> that's basically exactly what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. That is exactly it in a nutshell. And, and you know, um, it's, of course, the the technologies that dark matter scientists have at their disposal in terms of numerical calculation as well as particle accelerators, uh, that's remarkable technology. So I think there might be some, you know, you ne- never know, there might even be some AI applications that could be uh, used to actually work out whether dark matter could be causing a stream of stars like that. So mm. uh, we, we, I'm sure we'll hear f- more about it, the, the giant coma stream. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, about that. the imagery for, from the William Herschel telescope, which uh, was the one focused on this, is just remarkable. Yeah. Really worth looking yeah. at. I used to work on that. Used to work on that telescope. That's what took me to the Canary Islands. There you are. Uh, yes. So yeah, it's an interesting. An interesting. Uh, uh, it's a really good telescope, uh, and also in an interesting location with other instrument. In interesting instrumentation, which is what I was involved with. So mm. great to have uh, that William Herschel telescope image uh, showing this strange stream of stars. Um, it's kind of there must be a Christmas link here or a festive season link because we have streamers, don't we, for around Christmas trees? Yes, we like do. That. Yes, that's right. Um, and and lots of tinsel. Would, this, this is a tinselly yes. looking photo. It is. Yes, it is. Very tinselly. Yeah. If you want to take a look at the giant coma stream online, it's at the space dot com website. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. Sorry about the pause. I had the wrong screen set up. I was going to do something silly, and you know that's so unlike me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Uh, let's um, see if we can answer some audience questions, Fred, because we do that this uh, in, in the third segment usually, and uh, we've got a, a bunch of stuff to get through today. And our first question comes from Ash. Hi, Fred and Andrew. Ash from Brisbane here. Just wanted to share my thoughts on the boat, brightest object of all time. Um, just seems to me that a million solar mass black hole with no galaxy around it is a bit weird. And the fact that it's devouring a huge gas nebula, it just seems a bit odd to me. I reckon, in my personal opinion, that this could be the first witnessed um, event of a white hole. What are your thoughts? It could be uh, a black hole on the other side of it devouring something and the beam of gamma radiation being spat out the white hole directly in our direction. What are your thoughts? Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks, Ash. Uh, Intriguing idea. Uh, We better firstly explain what the boat is for those who haven't heard us talk about it previously we have mentioned it a couple of times i think it came up again one or two episodes ago it did. um so yeah we better again just explain what the boat is the um was it the brightest of all time was it yeah brightest of all time and it's gamma ray burst i think it was october 2022 when it occurred um and this oh, is yeah the, that's what, the one that punched the hole in our ozone in the, in the ozone that's right that's, it, that's it, right it was so strong uh distance if i remember rightly 1.9 billion light years uh, and um, 
yeah, but but was enough oomph to it to actually. It probably it, it may not have punched a hole in it. I think it wobbled it a bit. Yeah, uh, and you know, but uh, still a remarkable a remarkable uh, uh, occurrence. And and whereas most gamma ray bursts last a few seconds, this I think went on for seven minutes. Uh, so this huge amount of energy that's been released, exactly as Ash says, uh, and I do like his thinking there about white holes, um, because, but I'm not sure about his premise about there not being, uh, there not being a galaxy around it, because because gamma ray bursts are usually associated with um, basically um, exploding stars, super you know massive supernova explosions um so there might be a cross line there which i'd need to think about a bit more uh, mm. as i remember what 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 our discussion was but it's a gamma ray burst uh, and uh, there it is it is true that we are we start i think astronomers still do have an open mind about white holes because the mathematics says that if you reverse the time parameter in the relativistic equations for a black hole, you get a white hole, something that's spewing out material. Yeah. Uh, stuff can leave it, but nothing can go into it. Um, and so astrophysics doesn't rule that out. But the fact is that we've never found anything like that. So I think um, I like his thinking. I suspect uh, there are aspects to it that don't match what we what we would expect from a white hole. But um, watch this space. Yeah. Well, we are watching that space because we're trying to figure it out. I mean, um, but we don't know what caused it, do we? Uh, well, no. That's the thing. We, you know, we imagine that it's a it's a standard, very high energy explosion. Uh, that's the usual cause for a GRB gamma ray burst. Yeah, it just hit us. That's the that's the thing. It took a while, but it got yeah. here. Yeah. Well, yeah, it took one point. 1.9 billion years to get here and yeah. then rattle the atmosphere. It's scary, isn't it, when you think how what that might have done had we been within 1.9 million light years of it. That would have been the different kettle of fish. Yeah, it does sort of make you pause when you think about that awesome power so far away still being able to affect us. And, yeah, you've got to wonder if something something's sort of brewing closer. Sorry to sort of burst everyone's bubbles, so to speak. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, Ash. And, uh, yeah, great question. Well thought out. Uh, let's go to a text question now. And this one comes from uh, Daryl in South Australia. Uh, and Daryl says, G'day, gentle, hairy men. Okay. Um <laughs> Speak for yourself. Well, yeah, I just, yeah, uh, I haven't shaved today. Uh, I'm a long time listener, Patreon subscriber. Thank you very much, uh, Daryl. We appreciate that. And he says he's also an occasional question asker. Why, in a universe of such extremes and vast emptiness, does absolute zero, 273.15 Celsius or 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit, even exist? Given that a star is thousands to millions of degrees, why is there a limit on cold temperatures? Is there a limit on hot temperatures, absolute hot? And while I'm in the question asking mode, is there an absolute heavy and an absolute light? Keep up the more than <laughs> adequate job. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. <laughs> it's a good question, though. I, you know, we always, you know, you hear the term absolute zero all the time in science. Uh, is there an absolute 
you know, other end of the scale. Um, in some ways, there is, uh, but but absolute zero is a bit special, though, uh, because that's the temperature at which all atomic motion stops. So ah. um, atoms atoms are in a state of vibration uh, when they when they're heated, but when they cool to that temperature minus two hundred seventy three degrees Celsius, all motion stops, and that's why you can't go any colder. If you're talking about measuring the temperature of a substance, which is kind of what you mean. Mm. Um, at the other end of the scale, yeah, there are temperatures above which things become ionized. Um, I don't think there's a limit, though. I think you could keep on heating things till they become a soup of separate electrons and protons, which is more or less the state of things in the Big Bang uh, when the Big Bang occurred. So... Um, Maybe the temperature of the Big Bang is the ultimate limit. Uh, whatever it was, it was certainly many tens of millions of degrees, probably more like hundreds of millions of degrees. Uh, but but it doesn't have the same physical significance that absolute zero does. Uh, likewise, absolute heavy and absolute light, you could re reinterpret that saying, well, it's about density. Uh, is there an absolute maximum for density? And yes, that's infinite, which is what a black hole is. Yes. Um, so, you know, in that regard, we've got a limit there. Um, uh, is, there an Im uh, is there a minimum density? Well, I suppose it's nothingness, really. Uh, that's a you know something with a zero uh, density grams per cubic centimetre or whatever units you use. Mm. Um, so uh, none of those have the same kind of physical significance uh, of absolute zero. Mm. Um, just to throw a curveball, because that's what I like to do, um, we, we define um, absolute zero, as um, Daryl said, as minus 273.15 degrees Celsius. But that's just a number created by humans in terms of measurement, isn't it? Or is there a reason why it's that number? Is there some other science to it? Yeah, it's it's you're right. It's arbitrary. So... Um, Absolute zero is a is a physical state a state to be in uh, when atomic motion ceases. The reason why we measure it in Celsius is that Celsius was the best temperature scale that was produced uh, in the nineteenth century, uh, and it relates to the properties of water because it's zero when things are frozen, uh, and it is basically a hundred when things are boiling. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's the range of temperatures within which water exists as a liquid, which is not related to absolute zero, which is why there's this random number, minus 273.15 degrees Celsius, is where atomic motion stops. It just so happens that uh, 273.15 degree, degrees Celsius warmer than that is where water or ice melts, basically, where water uh, ice turns to water. Okay. Uh, so why do we measure things in Kelvin? Has that got to do with the extremes of temperature? Yeah, Kelvin is this, it's the same scale as Celsius, but it starts with absolute zero. So one degree Kelvin is, um, you know, basically two, minus 272 degrees Celsius. That's one okay. degree Kelvin. All right. So it's just sort of reduced the that, and, impact uh, of the numbers. <laughs> It, so, so the reason why that's useful is it takes water out of the equation. You don't need to worry about because Celsius is is hinged on the properties of water. 
Um, Kelvin is much more absolute. It's an absolute temperature scale because it mm. starts with absolute zero. Are you going to upset the Americans by saying Celsius is the best um, measure of temperature because they, they don't use it? Uh, but I do understand that uh, when uh, the Celsius scale was developed by um, Celsius himself, Anders, 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 Celsius. Anders yeah. um, he actually did it in reverse. He he measured the cold at 100, you know, the freeze point at 100 and um, the maximum at zero, didn't he? I, I read that somewhere. Is that an urban myth? I think you're right. I think that's right. I, though, I, yes, I'd forgotten that, but I think you're right that it that it was the wrong way around. Mm. Um, so somewhere just, along the uh, line, just, someone uh, went, "Hang on, it doesn't make sense." You know, the freezing point should be naught, and they flipped it. That's. I think that's correct. Mm. Um, our our uh, non-viewers won't be able to see this. But this is a napkin from mine and Marnie's favourite restaurant in Oslo, Café Celsius. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I, I've always, always thought it was worth saving because it's a very nice café, but I like the, I like the name. I do. Even too. though Anders Celsius, Anders Celsius was actually Swedish, but he's got oh, a well. café in Oslo. Maybe Close maybe. enough. <laughs> I hope it's still there. Yeah, I hope it's still there. Mm, yes. Uh, thank you, Daryl. Uh, let us go to another question, and this is a, an audio question from um, Pete here. Hi, Fred and Andrew. Pete here from Marmol Point on the shores of Lake Macquarie. Recently heard you talking about the impending collision of uh, the Andromeda and Milky Way galaxies. But I reckon I'm pretty confident. I've heard that the expansion of space is occurring at an even greater speed, meaning that in fact we'll never see Milkita or whatever term Andrew wants to use. <laughs> so my question is, which speed will win out? Thank you, Pete. Uh, lovely part of the world, Lake Macquarie. Um, spent yep. uh, a lot of time there in my youth, and uh, my my brother still lives in that part of the world, I believe. Well. Yeah, he moves around a lot, so I'm not sure now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, Pete, Pete's come up with an interesting theory here, um, the expansion of the universe negating the collision between uh, our two galaxies, uh, Andromeda uh, and uh, the Milky Way. It was Milkometer, I think we were calling it, Pete. Milkometer, that's right. Uh, and surpri surprisingly, that last discussion we had about it has spawned the same question or a similar question from three different sources so we can knock off three questions in one hit here. Very good. And the answer is no. Um, <laughs> I knew so, it would be. <laughs> yeah, it's always no, isn't it? Uh, except when it's, um, you know, just about adequate. <laughs> the, 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 the bottom line is uh, the separation of the Andromeda galaxy and ourselves is 2.5 million light years. Uh, which is negligible uh, when you come to look at the expansion of the universe. Um, we, we look at the expansion of the universe on scales of kilometers per second per megaparsec. Uh, mm -hmm. And a megaparsec is three point something million light, yeah, three point something million light years. Uh, and so um, that to the, 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 basically, what it, what I'm saying is the amount of expansion is very low 
compared with the, the gravitational pull that's pulling them together, which is in the region of 200 and I think if I remember rightly, it's about 270 kilometers per second, their approach speed, uh, which is far more than they're, they're being carried apart by the expansion of the universe. So the collision will happen. I keep yeah. telling people to put it in their diaries. Yeah, uh, It's going to happen. Yes, and um, I, one of the other questions that came in suggested that uh, the space between the galaxies was what is expanding and not the galaxies themselves, therefore they can't collide. But that's not true, is it? I mean, everything's expanding, even our houses are moving apart based on this science, but it's just so minuscule yeah. we'll never see it. Yeah, that's right. Actually, it's, that's not quite true ah. because um, on the scale of the of a planet, the gravitational bounding of the planet, the fact that it's got gravity which pulls yeah. everything down, that is vastly more effective than the expansion of the universe trying to pull it apart mm. um, because the... You know, you talk, you'd be talking about tiny, tiny amounts uh, of expansion over the width of a planet, uh, and planets are gravitationally very strong. Um, so I was going to just make a clarific clarification, uh, because galaxies... So, yes, the universe is expanding, and galaxies are being carried along with that. We call that the Hubble flow, and it's kind of analogous to the flow of a river, but also analogous to the flow of a river is... If you think of people in boats moving around on the river, they their motion is superimposed on the flow of the river. So they've got their own motion. And as galaxies do, we call it the peculiar motion of a galaxy. That's because it's peculiar to that galaxy itself, and it's not because it's been carried along by the expansion of the universe. And in the case of the Andromeda and Milky Way galaxies, their peculiar motion uh, is such that it'll bring them together, uh, uh, despite the Hubble flow trying to keep them apart. The Hubble flow is much, much lower uh, than the than the uh, gravitational pull pulling them pulling these two galaxies together. Okay, there you are, Pete, um, and the other people that uh, sent in questions of a similar ilk. Um, no, uh, it, the collision will happen. Uh, simply because of, uh, well, there's all sorts of different sciences going on here, but uh, one negates the other. Really? Um, and, yes, it will happen. So, as Fred said, put it in your diary. Um, thanks, Pete. Lovely to hear from you. Let's um, oh, Look, I, it's the last program of the year before we go into repeat mode. And uh, I thought, you know, last year we finished off with a song. This year, <laughs> this year... I'm going to regret this. We're going to finish with a dad joke. Hello, Space Nuts. Martin Berman Gorvine here, writer and pest extraordinaire in many genres, including dad-type jokes. And here is one such, inspired by the dizzying rotation of Sagittarius A-star, as described in episode 379. So we're going to do this Jeopardy style, right? So you get the answer first. And the answer is something so dense, even I can't escape it. And the question, as you can probably guess, is what do you get when you have a black hole that is rotating so rapidly it shakes itself to pieces 
now. Why does that generate the answer? Something so dense, even I can't escape it? Why? Because the word light also gets shaken to pieces, and one of those pieces is I. Oh, dear. Can't wait to hear your groans. Berman Gorvine of Potomac, Maryland, USA here, over and out, out, out. Oh, Martin, 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 <laughs> Martin. Uh, as far as dad jokes go, well thought out, um, but absolutely hideous. But it does deserve one of these. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, it, yeah. <laughs> You know, in terms of dad jokes, he, he put a lot of science into that. I'll, I'll give him credit for that. Uh, Fred, we are done for another show. We're done for another year. Um, just want to say thank you to you for making yourself available so often. And this, this has been a tough year because we've both spent a lot of time away and have had to basically cram and cram and cram to get every week's episode out. Uh, I think for one at one point there we we went seven weeks without recording, but no one would have noticed. So um, we we got them all lined up and and all into the system, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was a great effort. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Andrew. You've had a fairly tough year as well, uh, and uh, hopefully all is going well. Uh, you've moved house. You've done, done all kinds of things. Oh yeah, uh, I've so a, um, yeah, you, I've had you, an interesting year. In, yeah. The Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. Well, yeah, okay, major operation, moving house, uh, lots of job changes, um, finished up at the Salvation Army the other day. Uh, Yeah, it's all happening. (laughs) Hopefully next year will be much more smooth. And yet you've fitted in uh, 47 episodes, I think it is, of Space Nuts. It might have been, yeah. might have been. Uh, Yeah, so so well done. And uh, thanks for your company every week. It's uh, definitely a milestone in my weekly diary uh, that I'd be very upset to have to miss. So we'll keep going and uh, long may space nuts rule the airwaves. Yes, and the universe. That's what we're aiming for. We want to dominate the universe. Uh, Thanks, Fred. Much appreciated. Also want to say thank you to you, the listeners, for everything that uh, you do. The the fact that you support us is what's kept us going and uh, there are many thousands of you and I don't know uh, most of you, but we, we do have our regulars and we appreciate them. We appreciate our patrons who, uh, who who put their money where our mouths are, and uh, you know we just we still can't believe that people do that uh, just for the love of it. So thank you so much to our patrons, and uh, I know I give him a bit of stick every week, but thanks to Hugh in the studio. It was late again today, but that was our fault because we changed the time, but didn't tell him. Um, but uh, he works so hard behind the scenes to get everything out there into the ether, and it's uh, it's certainly greatly appreciated. So thank you, Hugh. And that wraps it up for this year. The next couple of weeks will be repeat episodes of uh, our, our popular Q&A shows where every everything's just audience questions. So there's a couple of really good ones that we thought we'd we'd run again from early in 2023. Until we get back in the new year, we wish you and your family and everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Salutations and celebrations. And until next time, uh, thanks for listening to Space Nuts.
Bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.